it's really good to be here. Um, I was sitting there reflecting on how long I have been in ministry and two years at Beanley. I think it was about 16 years at Sunnybank and before that seven years in central west Queensland in mining towns. And I have to say that over the 20 plus years that I have fallen more in love with God and more in love with the church every year. And so it is a real privilege to be able to be here and to share something of God's scriptures with us all. Last weekend, I officiated my nephew's wedding at a, on a little island off the Freshnet Peninsula in Tasmania. And it was a beautiful place. We, um, there's a photo of the, the island. We were the only ones on the island and we shared the island with a colony of penguins. And so the whole island was covered in this sort of grassy shrub thing with a little path that meandered all the way through. The path would take us sort of down into crevices and up onto high peaks and out onto the cliff edges and then back into the centre and it meandered places where I probably would not have walked if the path hadn't have taken me there. And I think the Psalms are a lot like uh, that pathway. They take us to human experiences that we probably wouldn't naturally gravitate towards. They take us to encounter God in places that we probably wouldn't expect to experience the presence of God. So today we're going to use Psalm 130. And this psalm is a psalm of ascent. And so the priests would um, chant this psalm and sing this psalm as they ascended on the path to Jerusalem to experience the presence of God in the temple. This is a psalm of lament. It is a liturgy that invites mourning, a pathway that meanders towards the depths of human emotion that we wouldn't naturally go towards and often we would prefer to avoid because we want to cover it up or we want to deny it or worse still blame other people for the anguish and the pain of our soul. And so the, the opening two verses of this psalm give a clear indication of the intent of the author's heart. In fact, these first four words say, out of the depths. So out of the depths. This is not just a trivial or menial cry to God. This goes deeply beneath and boldly beyond most cries for help. You know, we often cry out to God for help, help me get this assignment done. Or in my case this morning, help me get a park at Trinity. <laughs> you know, but this psalm or these psalms of lament take us much deeper and far beyond just a menial cry for help. They come from a deep place. He goes on to say, I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. This use of parallelism or the repetitive phrase indicates the desire of his heart for God to listen. Something out of the depths of his being earnestly desires to be heard by God. This is a cry from a deep place, not just a simple, please help me get this assignment done, but this is rather a deep yearning and a deep cry of the heart. 
Perhaps something had been plaguing his life and continually dragging him down and it was like, oh, here I am again facing this same thing and it's just getting me down. Well, this psalm opens with the call of God in the midst of this anguish. Any psalm of lament is not just a random scream in the night. They are real expressions of real dis-ease from real people who exercise real faith in the living God. There's a real pain and a cry of the heart, a real anguish. And this psalm models a godly response to suffering and hardship. The Lord doesn't expect us to remain stoic when we face suffering. We can pour out our souls to the Lord. And what, what could possibly be happening for this man to earnestly desire God's attentive ear? Well, it appears that the author's own sin is causing him distress. We don't know what his sin is and we don't know how it's affecting him. We just know that it's causing him anguish. He says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you so that you may be revered. Firstly, there's a clear recognition that he knows that everyone sins. And yet his attention is not on the sin, but rather on the character and nature of God. And in this case, it's God's forgiveness. We can often get caught in focusing on sin, whether it is our own or other people's sin, and the anguish caused by that sin becomes the content of our prayers. Lord, I'm angry because this person did this. Lord, I'm frustrated because this isn't happening. Lord, I'm disappointed or I'm hurt because of this. And so the content of our prayers actually becomes the anguish of our heart as the result of sin. Whereas this psalm invites us not to look at the sin or the anguish it causes, but rather to focus on the character and the nature of God. And in this case, it is God's forgiveness. And because the author knows this character and nature of God, he is able to wait patiently and expectantly for God to meet with him in this anguish. He says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who wait for the morning, more than those who wait for the morning. Again, this small repetition indicating an earnest yearning for the presence of God. A real hunger and a thirst for God's presence. His waiting for God's presence isn't one of frustration, like waiting for the lights to turn green or waiting to be served at a checkout. It is waiting with hope. There's an anticipation. It's looking forward to it. It's like, this is going to be good. When I get to the temple and I experience God's presence, it's going to be great. I can't wait to meet with you in the temple, Lord, and experience your forgiveness. There is a sense of joy-filled anticipation in his waiting for God. And he compares it to a watchman who's been awake all night observing and watching and looking on behalf of the community, and he's waiting for the dawn. When I took that photo just on my phone, I walked the island three times because I'm a morning person, so I'm up early. I walked the island three times before I could get a beautiful picture of that sun rising. 
And it's very much like waiting in anticipation for a beautiful shot to come. It's like the psalmist waiting to experience God's presence. He knew that an encounter with God would be good. And even though he was riddled with anguish over his own sin, he waited with joyful anticipation that God would meet with him and forgive him and restore him again. You know, we may not always know that we actually need to experience God's presence. We may not know that our soul is yearning and hungry and thirsty for an encounter with God because we often fill it up with other things. We fill it up with the next greatest experience or you know, some social engagement or binging Netflix or worse still, we push that aside and blame other people for that emptiness and that pain. We don't realise that that is a yearning and a hunger for us to know God personally and intimately. Whenever I read this or, or you know, something like this, I'm immediately drawn to the story of the woman at the well. I wonder if she really knew that what she was ex- wanting and exp- yearning to experience was a personal encounter with Jesus. It wasn't until she had it that she realised that was what she needed and wanted. And I wonder that with the woman caught in adultery, you know, did she really know that she was actually yearning for a personal experience with Jesus until she had it and then said, yeah, this was what I was wanting all along. And when we take courage to walk the path set before us in the Lament Psalms, and descend into the depths of our soul, there we will find God already waiting for us to notice his presence. Just like those two women, Jesus was already waiting for them, for an encounter with them. God's already waiting for us to notice his presence in some of those deep and lonely and unpleasant places. Just as the pilgrims meandered over the path towards the temple, singing or chanting this psalm to prepare their hearts to experience the presence of God, so we who follow the path of lament psalms will encounter the presence of God in deep places of our yearning soul. I want to share with you a ministry experience I had several years ago. There was um, a lady who was leading a particular ministry in the church and everybody loved her everybody kept affirming her and saying she's so gifted and she's so experienced and in her workplace outside of the church she worked in this field and so she out of anyone in the church this lady knows how to lead this ministry and come she came from a family of you know stalwarts in the church her parents pretty much established the church and she they were still in the congregation everybody loved her and everybody appreciated her ministry except me because every time we would give her something to do, she never followed through with it. She would say, oh, I'll type the minutes of that meeting and I'll send it out to us this afternoon. And so she'd take all the notes and she wouldn't type them up and she wouldn't send them out. And then she'd say, oh, I'll put that on the website so people will know that'll be on our, on our you know, program. And okay, you can do that. And of course, it would never happen. It'd never get on the website. She'd say, oh, I'll phone those people and I'll organise this. And it never happened. And so I was so frustrated with her 
And I realised I had to have a conversation and say, you know, how's things going? So I took her out to a coffee shop and <laughs> I said, so tell me, how do you think this ministry is going and how do you think you're going in leading this ministry? Oh, it's great. I'm going really well. And I'm sitting there going, oh, no, you're not. And, and I had to say, well, you know, there have been times when you haven't followed through on what you committed to doing and it causes a little bit of dysfunction for me and for other people and considering this was a key ministry, outreach ministry, it also sends a bit of a message to people outside of the church about, you know, our commitment. I said, um, have you noticed some of those things? Oh, yeah, you know, I get a bit busy, I get a bit scattered and hmm, we kept talking. I said, so what do you think you need to help you be a bit more disciplined and to follow through with some of those things. So, oh, I'll get a diary and I'll put it in and I'll make sure I do all this, this and this. And I said, okay, how about we meet in a month's time and we'll just see how you're going with some of these things you've suggested to implement. And a month came and she ended up having to have surgery. And a few weeks after that, someone in the family got really sick and so that took time. And then another couple of months went by and she needed other surgery. And a long story short, it was 12 months went by and she was still leading this ministry and it was still not <laughs> great. And I was so frustrated. Like it would wake me up through the night. I'd be like in bed at two in the morning thinking, well, I'm going to tell her this and I need, we need to do, you know, those thoughts that we, we have. <laughs> and I realised I needed to step back and withdraw and take a bit of time to reflect further upon this. So I practice the Sabbath on a, on a weekly basis. I take a Friday as a complete day of spending unhindered and unhurried time with God. And I practice journaling because journaling for me is a helpful tool. You know, when your mind goes 100 miles an hour and the emotions are going 100 miles an hour and it feels like things are on in a washing machine going full spin, <laughs> journaling helps me slow that down. So for me, journaling is a powerful discipline that sort of slows all of that down and helps me notice what's actually happening. Now, I also have a ministry mentor, but he was overseas at that time and so... In my mind, I'm thinking, what would Charles say? And I could hear his voice saying, Karen, why are you letting this happen? <laughs> and so I sat with that question. Why am I as a leader letting this happen in this ministry? Why am I letting it happen? I sat with it for a couple of hours. I sat with that question. And I realised I let it happen because I was afraid of what would happen if I stood her aside. If I asked her to stand aside from that ministry and let someone else step in, I was afraid because her and her family were so well known, they were people of influence. What would people think of me? What will people think of my leadership? What will happen to the ministry? What if I can't get somebody else to step into that role? So all of these, there was fear, there was pride and selfishness. And that was what was causing me anguish. It wasn't her. 
I had put it all on. This woman was causing me anguish and keeping me up at night. But it wasn't. It was my own sin. I was in bondage to fear, in bondage to pride, in bondage to selfishness. And it was creating anguish in me and dysfunctional leadership. And so on the surface, while I accused her of my anguish, it was actually stepping back and taking that journey of descent into the anguish of my own soul, noticing my sin in all of this and experiencing the presence of God there. And so coming back to the story of you know, the, the woman at the well and putting myself into her you know, putting myself into that story and picturing myself having a conversation with Jesus about my own stuff and looking into his eyes and noticing in his eyes absolute compassion, absolute compassion for me and love for me and joy that we were just having this face-to-face conversation and his forgiveness and the grace transformed me you know it's good to read books on leadership and it's good to have a ministry and it's vital to have a ministry mentor and it's fantastic to have ministry supervision but it's those things don't transform us a personal encounter with the presence of God is what transforms forgives restores heals and empowers for ministry So I was then able to step up. I had courage to engage with this lady and the consequences of stepping her, asking her to step aside for a season. I had wisdom in how to engage that. I had grace so that I could do that well for her. It was a positive experience for her and not a harsh, you know, disciplinary action. All because in those deep, places of lament we can experience the presence of God so reading and experiencing all of these things these external things can help us but it's the presence of God that transforms the psalmist is familiar with this healing and with this forgiveness and with this transforming presence of God and the psalmist therefore invites us on this journey of transformation and empowerment and then proceeds to call others to wait in hope for God to act with love and power. He goes on to say, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love and with him there is great power to redeem. It is he who will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. This is a mighty declaration of character and nature of God most completely expressed in the coming redemption through Christ. And this is the call of the church. It is to beckon others to put their hope in the steadfast love of God. So with every encounter, with every sermon, with every conversation, it becomes an opportunity to say, you need to experience the steadfast love of God because it will transform you. It will empower you. It will restore you. It will give you what you need to be the person you were created to be and to do the things that God has called you to do. 
It's a natural outflowing. Inviting others to experience the steadfast love of God is a natural outflowing of experiencing it ourselves. So let us not gloss over the Psalms. Let us not say just a quick prayer of confession and move into the next part of the day. But rather, let us allow the Psalms to take us on a journey to places we may not naturally go towards, places that acknowledge and embrace all of human experience and there meet God face to face, experiencing God's forgiveness, God's restoration, God's renewing, God's transforming steadfast love and empowering presence. Amen.